Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. My guest today is Brittany Villalpando. Brittany, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Hey, Wallace. I'm doing pretty good today. Thank you for, you know, inviting me on. You know, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. No, super excited to have you on. Uh, I guess to begin, could you kind of briefly introduce yourself to the listener and then talk a little bit about what you do? Of course. You know, first and foremost, thank you to everyone who's listening. I hope you all are doing great. Um, so a little bit about myself, my full name, I go by Brittany Villalpano Torres. Um, I'm including that maiden name for my mom's side, uh, paying respect and homage to her um, family. <clears throat> so I am a fifth year at UC Davis now. You know, the pandemic really made me realize how much, you know, time could stop at any moment. And with all honesty, I wasn't done with Davis yet. And Davis is not done with me. So I entered fifth year. I'm, um, my main major is cognitive science. Um, I'm attaining my other degree in Chicano studies. And I do have a minor in psychology. Um, I wear many different hats, with all honesty, whether, you know, just from being family, um, I am a researcher, I'm academic, you know, academic student, major, um, like a counselor, I guess you could say, I am, my goodness, where can I start? But my main source of employment right now, I work for self-reliance recovery. Um, I am a research assistant in the cognition in con- context lab at Davis. Um, and I do miscellaneous work on site community organizing. Um, there's a just initiative on campus as well. I participated in the mental health initiative um, <clears throat> and I just finished my board uh, position for Psychi, which is the Honor Society in Psychology on Davis. So I know it was really sporadic with that, but I hope I gave you like the basis. No, 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 that's great. No, I think it's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on because I mean, you said it really well. You wear a lot of different hats, but for as long as I've known you, you've always been involved in really cool and really important things. Um and I guess specifically for mm-hmm. the, for self-awareness and recovery, I guess yeah. for the listener or for somebody who doesn't necessarily know what you guys do, what's kind of the mission and the purpose of, uh, of that organization? Of course. Thank you for asking. So Self-Awareness and Recovery is a nonprofit organization out in Sacramento. And what makes this nonprofit organization so special and, in my opinion, so powerful is this organization is was founded and is currently ran by fully incarcerated folks. So it was currently, um, it wasn't currently, it's, it was founded by Daniel Silva when he was actually incarcerated, serving a 39-year sentence for a crime he did not commit. And so he started it within the prison walls. And as soon as he was released, he, you know, he got to work. He established a nonprofit and he employs as many from incarcerated, um, you know, individuals to go ahead and do the work and by work i mean delivering very powerful you know trauma-informed workshops evident-based workshops where they analyze the past the history the trauma the behavior of each individual person to get to the root of your pain to get to the root of why were you incarcerated why were you engaging these behaviors that damaged your spirit that damaged your family that damaged your future why is it? And so these workshops, you know, they're not just aimed to currently incarcerated folks or formerly incarcerated. You know, it's also aimed for high potential youth, you know, who are needed some guidance. Um, it's really for anyone. You know, I've done workshops myself and it's a, it's a really powerful thing. You know, when you take time and speak about everything that has happened to you, 
and why you're here. What have you done and what will you do? And I really admire this organization so much because I see the true nature of like the human spirit and, you know, the, the community, the, the, the togetherness, the compassion, the understanding, you know, the fact that you want to listen to somebody. And I think that's, I don't know. I think that's, that's really important nowadays. Mm-hmm. And so I am not formally incarcerated. Um, <clears throat> But my position at Self-Awareness Recovery is to try to do as much miscellaneous work so the folks who do have this lived experience can do the work that they need to do in this community. Mm. So my position, you know, it goes from grant writing, grant submission, budgets, invoicing, curriculum building, um, communication, organization, um, you know, maintaining partnerships with other community organizations, um, researching, um, just very, you know, m- mundane activities. So like I said, you know, the folks who really have this powerful experience and go out and do the work that needs to be done. And so occasionally when um, we do have female youth in our, in our like office, of course, you know, if they want to talk, I'll be there. What's up? How's it going? You know, I just love talking a lot too, you know, see how they're doing. It's always great. You know, sometimes it's just a little easier to talk to someone who you can relate to a little bit more. So Mm -hmm. that's also how I were there. Um, You know, occasionally I'll be typing away on this certain activity and they'll call me from like the the table that, hey, Brittany, what do you think about this? And I'll be like, I stop and I go back to typing. (laughs) So it's a... It's just a beautiful thing to be in that office, you know, to see the, like I said, the community of it all. Absolutely. No, I think a lot of things stand out to me from what you said. I mean, I love sort of the double pronged approach of the organization, both Mm -hmm. as a preventative um, resource for the youth in the area who may be at high risk uh, for sort of a myriad of reasons, and then Mm -hmm. also as a restorative um, resource Mm -hmm. for those who've those who've gone through really hard things, whether before they were incarcerated, while they're incarcerated, or even mm-hmm. after they're incarcerated. And I think formally that, that population, that group of people who have been formally incarcerated is often um, overlooked or sort of pushed aside. So it's really oh, cool yes. to hear how um, that organization is kind of providing a space yeah. for those people to be listened to and to be heard. Um, and then just about your approach to working in the organization, I know this is something, knowing you, I know this is something that you're really passionate about, but yeah. it's, I'm also kind of, um, I really admire the humility with which you approach the job. I think when anybody wants to get involved with anything, we kind of picture ourselves with our sleeves rolled up kind of on the front lines, oh, yeah. like interacting with people, like having <laughs> important conversations, but yeah. it's again, really admirable of you to take a step back and allow the people with the actual lived experience yeah. to go out there and do that while you provide this really important kind of supportive scaffolding and and background work sort of the nitty-gritty that allows the organization to keep ticking no no and i really appreciate you all for you know for being so attentive to the overall program and and you know supporting me in that sense um because when it comes to incarceration and criminalization and justice it's a very um like unbalanced field where many different people have different opinions on it, you know, everyone's entitled to their own. Um, but when you work with this population, it is very easy to meet people who are very um, adverse into working with them. You know, there's this idea that 
people who are incarcerated or who were engaging in these um, criminogenic factors and activities, it's really easy for folks to want to push them aside and not really take their opinion or, you know, really see the humanity in them. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like you um, haven't had the experience of it, but, you know, when you really take time to observe this, this dynamic between folks who have lived severe hardships in their life and folks who haven't, you really see, you know, just how far apart they are. And you're kind of wondering why, you know, what's, what is the purpose of this? And so, um, you, you know, being part of this organization and just seeing this organization unfold and continue, it's like, you are all going against this narrative that has been placed on you for so long. And I'm so proud of you all. And they're all wonderful people. They really are. And the life experience that they teach you, you know, they really teach you the value of time and mm-hmm. the value of an everyday life. And sometimes, like, you know, we live our lives too fast. That mm-hmm. is so refreshing to have a conversation with them to remind you to go back to the everyday enjoyment of, you know, a blessing of life this is, you know. Absolutely. No, what you say reminds me of a quote by one of a shared favorite author of, 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 of us, Father Greg Boyle. And he talks about going to the margins of society, not to change and help the people, but allow those people to change and help you. That's I'm paraphrasing a bit, but no, it's, it's amazing yes. to hear, hear you kind of talk about how you've, how you've sort of lived that out by allowing yourself to be exposed. And I'd love to hear kind of more about how the experience has sort of shaped you from your initial expectations going into the job and kind of where you are now having had, um, have, having had some time to, to do the work yeah. and be a part of it. No, definitely. So I've been working with Daniel, who is a founder um, since March of 2020, but I did meet him March of 2019. Um, and at the time I didn't have the transportation for me to go work. So I had to put that on hold. Uh, March, 2020 came along and I was um, spearheading an event under the Mental Health Initiative at UC Davis, and this event was called um, Mass Incarceration Mental Health. And so I decided to reach back out to Daniel and ask for them to be on a panel where we discuss the mental health um, aspect of incarceration and criminalization, poverty, um, violence, and how that affects the overall idea of incarceration. And so it, it was really, I was so happy and honored that they agreed to come on. And we had a large audience, this was over Zoom because the pandemic had already. And I was really proud of, you know, my community for asking such powerful questions because it gave me insight that there are a lot of people who are very curious and interested in this intersection of, you know, the state of a person's emotional and mental well-being and also spiritual and psychological well-being and how that, you know, ties in with incarceration. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people think it's two separate ideas that you are born to be bad and you did something bad and off you go and we will never see you again. That's uh, that is such a, you know, watered down idea of the overall history of incarceration. But that's still the idea. Mm. Um, but do we really understand how, you know, how the person's mental health, how their upbringing, how their family dynamic, how their socioeconomic status, how their environment how did that affect them and exactly what was the nature of the crime and exactly why are we supposed to never see them again when the whole purpose is rehabilitation 
But, you know, it's important that we now move into this idea of we're not trying to just rehabilitate all our lives, right? We want to be preventative with this. And so that was pretty much the overall idea in that um, that event in, in March 2020. And so <clears throat> since March 2020, I've been working with Daniel at the time over Zoom. And then finally, when, you know, the office opened up, I was able to go in person and wow, <laughs> my goodness, wow. Um, seeing so many different folks, meeting different folks, hearing their stories, you know, um, three of our main uh, employees or rather colleagues, they have over 300 years of incarcerated time between them. And it's like, oh, between five, sorry, around 300 years of incarcerated time with them. And I'm like, darn it, you know, this person spent 40 years, 30 years, you know, 20 years. And me, myself at the time, I was just 21, <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah. They were incarcerated longer than I was born or longer than I lived. Um, and I first started the work just really excited to just do miscellaneous stuff and, you know, see the organization grow. And as things, as you know, as time went by, wow, I just got to be more, you know, tied into the work because you really get close to so many different people, you know, and Personally, I think I've always been a people person, even though I'm like really nervous all the time. <laughs> I just really like to hear what you got to say. And I really got, I really excited to hear about what you lived through. And so you get attached to the work. And so when we have, you know, a bunch of youth come in, um, I remember when one of my like youth that we have out in the office got like the first like full-time job. Oh my God, I lost myself. I was like so happy. You know, because this is like, yes, you know, you got this. And just, you know, little victories like that. And I know people say like nonprofit organizations don't necessarily do a lot of work. Um, and because overall you should be making like big strides and demolishing the patriarchy and the ab abolition and these really grand ideas. And granted, you know, there's validity in all of it. Mm -hmm. I can only control what I can. Right. And I'm going to start by showing up to work and do this. And, Absolutely. And that's where I knew, like, ah, yes, this is where I'm nice and happy and I belong. For sure. No, I mean, I, I really like the way you articulated that idea. I think for many people who feel moved to get involved, to combat sort of whatever of the many number of social <laughs> issues that we face in this country, yeah. um, the fact that they are so many and of such like a formidable size is really daunting. So I admire like how you one kind of acknowledge the fact mm -hmm. that, but also kind of instead of just sort of sitting on the sidelines, kind of in awe of the size of the problem, <laughs> doing doing your your best to find your way to get involved and to actually do the work. I mean, earlier you talked about the value of time, right, as being yeah. something that you learned from from the folks who have kind of passed through your program or, or, or been involved in, in whatever sort of projects. And I think like when I hear you sort of celebrating the little things of somebody mm -hmm. getting a job That's and stuff like that, I think thing. when we value, exactly, when we value time value and value time truly, like those little things become big yes. things and, yeah. and, and in a really positive way. Oh my goodness. It, it makes you, you know, live each day differently. You know, um, when I used to get so upset because it was so darn hot and I'm stressed. But I'm like, you know what? How beautiful is it that I could feel the sun and the warmth and, you know, that I'm not 
that I'm stressed because I have work to do. You know, I'm stressed because I'm doing something I like to do. <laughs> How awesome is that? You know? Yeah, no, that's really well said. I mean, I think like to do this kind of work where you are making yourself available for people to share really intimate struggles mm-hmm. and and adversities they've faced, you have to make yourself emotionally available, right? And when you make an emotional investment, there is, of course, the possibility that that investment will not pay off, which will lead to sadness and disappointment, all that kind of stuff. But to me, like the benefits of making those investments of truly living, of truly feeling, of, of feeling the successes of somebody else, like they were your own. I mean, the the positives greatly outweigh the negatives. It comes down to like, what do you value? Mm -hmm. Honestly. Um, Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you've talked a lot about how you do preventative work with the youth. um, But I imagine a challenge you might face is often the people who need the most help are the hardest to find in order to help. So what are some strategies that you guys at self-awareness and recovery have tried to kind of employ in order to reach those most at-risk youth who may be kind of the most difficult to reach? This is such a good question because um, providing this type of work, you know, you're providing emotional healing and, um, mental health support and counseling and also support and housing and professional development and overall growth. Um, there's this idea, well, people only want to be helped if they want to be helped. Like you can't help them if they don't want to and blame it on my stubbornness, but I can't just simply accept that fact. <laughs> you know, if someone turns down the help and someone says, well, they don't want it. I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> you know, because I, w- I would like to know more about this person. And I would like to know why you don't feel like you deserve this help or what is going on that makes you not feel like you're deserving of this. So, mm, you know, let me know what's, go- what's up. I don't just want to accept your no and that's it. There I go. Um, there's something else going on because I could see that you deserve as anyone, as any human being really like, um, well, that could be challenged. Actually, I see that you, you could, and you should, and you can be happy and be in a point in your life where you feel safe and at peace. So what's up? And so how do we reach them? Um, a lot of persistence. And also approaching not with this idea that I need to help you. I need to save you. I need to be your hero. I'm not trying. No, no. Because that is out of deficit thinking, thinking that they themselves are weak. And that's not exactly what I'm not thinking that. And I'm not trying to make sure we're not trying to do that either. You know, because I can tell you for certain you've endured way more than I have ever. Mm. And I am in no place to ever say that you're weak. Um, cause I certainly may not ever endure what you did. And, um, just because I'm in a different state of life, you know, because I've had so many different privileges and blessings of education, of family, of support does not mean I am better. And so how we approach it is a lot of persistence and also time and patience and also a lot of understanding. Um, you can assume that, you know, this person's life, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's for me to learn and that's for you to feel comfortable to tell me about. And so helping one another isn't an instant yes. Helping another it is an uphill battle sometimes that will take time and patience devotion. And if you have the patience for it, then all the better. 
And so we've had youth who will sometimes come in and sometimes leave and sometimes come in. And we're not angry at you for leaving, but we're happy that you came back. Mm. And so it's this idea of providing a type of environment that will allow them to feel safe and be rooted, right? And so that applies across the board, whether you are fully incarcerated or not. If you are just someone who has been severely affected by the trauma of incarceration or criminalization or, you know, the justice, you can, you can seek help with us, you know, because one way or another, we understand. Absolutely. No, that is so, so, so well said. I think it's cool for me to see kind of the parallel both between your attitude of approaching every day with an opportunity to do some work, even in the face of these maybe at times seemingly insurmountable obstacles of the prison, mm-hmm. indu- the prison industrial complex, yeah. things like that. But also, and then in the parallel between that and then the consistency with which you approach um, the process of making yourself available to these youth. Because I think like I myself have found have, have been guilty of, of sort of proselytizing to, to the people who I want to be of service to. Mm-hmm. But really in reality, like kind of, as you said, who am I to, to say yeah. that I know better than you? Right? Yeah. I think <laughs> the power of, of, of yeah. what you said when it came to the lived experiences that those individuals have, have gone to and how that, how anything that I've experienced is really pales in comparison to the things that they've had to endure. Um, you know, say, like life is, really is hard. Important. Yeah. You know? Life is hard and we all have our own struggles. And honestly, no no one should be born to save others because that that would mean in a sense that you're putting way too much on your own self and you're seeing others as people who need saving. But Yeah, or that others are born to be saved. Exactly. You know, we're all trying to figure out this life one day at a time. And you're right in the prison industrial complex. And the overall state and of how this specific, um, what's a really good word? Hmm. I'm going to use capitalism just to say not in terms of economic, like economic, but in terms of the structure of which we live in. It's it can be really deficit to a lot of folks. So, depending on where you're born and when you're born, could really determine your life. And whether or not, you know, we all have power to change within our own selves and what we could. However, there are many instances and many folks who are born into a state of environment that's very detrimental to their upbringing. And so they're trying to live their own day. They're trying to grow and they're trying to navigate in which they can, in which they learn. And it is a difficult thing to do. You know, when you really take time, understand that not everyone comes from the same place that you come from. It makes you realize that they need different things than you need. Mm-hmm. And, but at the end of the day, they are still a person who's trying to navigate this and it's difficult. We don't have the answers. And so, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's just, in my opinion, how we should go about working with folks, you know, not seeing them as lower than us, but rather, you know, rather shoot, there are things that they couldn't control and mm-hmm. they're just, reacting and trying to survive too just like i am sometimes absolutely no i i have nothing to add to that so well said i think another aspect of the program that i wanted to ask about is is the the trauma the hardship the Mm -hmm. pain of of being incarcerated i think 
certainly expand or extends beyond just the individual who, who served the time beyond bars. Is there, is there any kind of process of the rehabilitation work that you guys do that allows um, formerly incarcerated folks to, to gain skills or, or to learn about how maybe, or, or to maybe deal with the guilt that they feel of, of having left the fa- left their families or, yeah. or cause pain and things like that? Definitely. And um, <clears throat> so I definitely, for sure, I'm going to be speaking on the activities that my colleagues do since I myself not from incarcerated. Um, the activities they do also is that they go through the effect and nature of the crime that was committed, or in some cases they were committed as accomplices or as my, you know, as my boss, he was committed on a crime he didn't commit. So they do go through the process of understanding the nature of what had happened. And they go through the process of breaking it down and revisiting um, why it was committed and what had happened beforehand and what had happened bef- afterwards. And that's, that's a really big step in, you know, when you, when you want to go on this journey of, as the name says, self-awareness and recovery, that's a big step because that, that's, that crime, whatever it may be, made a huge difference in your life. It meant freedom. So they do take time to analyze that. And, um, you know, afterwards, then it hits you with a whole frenzy of time to learn all these skills that a lot of folks are, were able to learn at such a young age. You know, um, utilization of a phone, that's a big thing. Like just yesterday, just yesterday, we, um, we went to go pick up um, a person who was just released after spending 21 years. Mm-hmm. And so he went in the 90s. And, you know, we, we gave him time to speak on his experience. He was going crazy. Like, the cars look different. The phones look different. There's, there's, um, the food is different. The clothing's different. You know, everything was just, and he, he was just basking in the whole different century, <laughs> you know? And then yeah. in, my, in my head, it baffles, it not baffles me. In my head, I'm like really thinking like, yo, um, I was born with basically a phone in my hand. I was born going straight to a laptop or like computer skills, researching, reading, things like that. This person was gone for the whole like time of the technological boom, (laughs) you know? And so this is where we do our best. This is where, you know, kind of like where I come in or some of my other colleagues who were incarcerated come in, where we introduce computers, introduce kind of like the everyday things that we're so used to doing. So we do do a lot of professional development. We do a lot of connecting with different organizations to help them. Hey, are you interested in doing this trade? We got you. You can go to here to learn it. There you go. You can start making money, start doing what you like to do. Or um, if you like to stay in counseling work, you're able to do that too. You can get your um, degree in um, like um, drug addiction and substance abuse, right? And so we do provide different avenues and different routes like that because the first step understanding nature of crime, you know, the effects, and now you're here in this world. And in my research that I did, you know, California has one of the worst recidivism rates because it has one of the worst um, support systems for for people who are released. It's very difficult to find a job, very difficult to get education, to find a place to live because prices are so high and you can't pay the rent because you can't get a job. And, you know, the worst, um, no support in 
you know, if you have to relapse on drugs, you relapse. There's no support in mental health. And, and whether you're schizophrenic, bipolar, there's no support. And so now we're faced with that big issue of kind of checking off every box that they may need to have some steady type of reentry. You know, because it is a big difference. There's a lot of PTSD that's involved with coming out of incarceration, especially after so long. You know, it's not just easy as to pick up a book and go to work and get a car and establish your credit, you know, get a driver's license, get an ID, you know, things like that. It, it's it's completely difficult. And a lot of us were just born into this. Like, right. everything was just, you know, easy there. For sure. No, I mean, I think the the rehabilitation and then the resources that the organization provides to do their best to facilitate the reentry of these folks back into back into communities after having spent a long, long time away is is really, 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 really important. Um, and I think it brings me kind of a, to sort of a question about sort of your own idea about your sort of personal trajectory in this work, because I know just sort of looking at what you've studied both spending time as a behavioral therapist, studying cognitive psychology, your involvement in in this kind of work, do you sort of see yourself kind of operating at the intersection of of, of mental health and and rehabilitation from 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 spending time incarcerated? I do actually. I do. And there's many, many different um, factors when it comes to incarceration. Don't get me wrong, whether it's from a historic perspective, political, um, cultural study perspective, many different avenues. Um, and I take time and I really focus on the mental health aspect of it, the psychological component, the emotional well-being, um, and in a lot of cases, spiritual well-being. Um, you know, because when, we, when you do this work and you look at the history of incarceration and also if you look at the rates and uh, the prevalence of mental health disorders within the carceral system, oh my God, it's like, wait, hold, hold up. Hold up, why is there not more direct hands-on work into mm-hmm. addressing the psychological component that a lot of these folks who are incarcerated are experiencing? You know, um, I was doing research on juvenile detention centers and YAs, and more than half of these youths, um, there's a rate that they all have some sort of psychological disorder, some sort of mental health disorder. And California's prisons, um, they're not equipped to provide effective psychological support not at all and a lot of times this type of support is very eurocentric and not necessarily culturally informed or trauma-informed um you can't just give someone a pill and expect them to be better you know there's a whole other aspect into understanding the development of psychology um especially when it comes to a young adult who grew up in an area where there was everyday violence, whether that be domestic violence or outside violence, where there was um, prevalence of drug abuse, where there was prevalence of just um, not enough educational support either, all that kind of brews in a pot. It really does. And so if, if California or if honestly, if anyone wants the idea of rehabilitation to work, um, there's a huge huge need to focus more on the psychological development and understanding that component and how can we support that afterwards, you know, because PTSD is severe. Depression is severe. Um, any type of mental health disorder is severe. 
you know, why, why should anyone live a day in their lives under severe stress, sadness, anxiety, anger? Like, how is that acceptable? You know? And so when I go about this work, I'm constantly making connections, honestly, of not just the neural mechanisms, if we're talking about biology, but also just a behavioral, behavioral component. Um, and uh, that, that's one of the reasons why I admire self-awareness recovery so much, why I admire so many folks who do this work, because it's like, thank you for taking time to see the connection between this two. Um, and you know, how, can we how can we push the narrative to continue looking at it? No. Absolutely. No, I think it is, it is really, it's, it is daunting when you look at it in the sense that I think we, and the, to use a really big, we like as a country have been complicit yeah. in the, in the really sort of heinous wrongdoing of utilizing detention facilities as, as a place yeah. to, to put people who haven't had the mental health resources and support they need. Um, and as you mentioned, those places are not equipped to provide those individuals with no. the support um, that they need moving forward. So again, I think it just, for me, it underscores and reemphasizes the importance of both the rehabilitation and reentry work that self-awareness and recovery do, but also the preventative work um, exactly. with the youth. And I guess it's, that's, you've mentioned your research a few times, and I think this is kind of a great segue to, to circle into, or to sort of tie in another thing I really was interested about is your, your recently published research, which was, which was, which was awarded and acclaimed in many different ways. I guess before we dive into that, I'm interested, how did you sort of first get involved in research? And then what was the path that led you to this specific yeah. project? Oh, I love research because I have so many questions of why and how and when, mm. where, mm. you know, <laughs> it's really difficult to go about every day and just accept things without really understanding how do we get here? Um, and so I've always had such a fascination with the neural mechanisms, right, and, and the behavior and, and how we operate. And then when I started, um, you know, tutoring um, youth who are incarcerated and learning more about their experiences and uh, taking time out to help teach them, and then you start learning about your own history and the history of incarceration and how that affected um, my community personally, Ugh, I started getting a big why just splattered all over my head why mm. <laughs> and so also just a fascination of how just um mental health disorders you know um come about and so under the murals program at uc davis which i'm really thankful that i was you know chosen to be part of the program um i did a, a quality of study on to uh, addressing um incarceration and recidivism right um, by using lived experiences and so I wanted to document this when this meaning when I was working and seeing so many different, you know, folks come through our office and seeing such strong mentorships and seeing how this is working. You know, the folks who are just being recently released, they're not going back to, to prison. Why is this working? Why is this different? Um, because obviously every, you know, we always hear in California that, um, new law passed or a new initiative passed that we're trying to address incarceration and new, 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 but why is it that California is so struggling with this? And so I'm like, you know what, I want to document this and I want to study why this is working. And so, you know, I did 
um, multiple interviews. I interviewed um, adults and I interviewed um, youth who are in the program. And, you know, I asked some questions about their experience with this mentorship program at SAR, their experience in SAR entirely. And how is that affecting them? You know, what's going on? And so I try to stay objective um, with my questions, just being very generalized. Um, it, you know, our conversations could be up to two hours and I just recorded all. I recorded all our conversations. Um, I just let them talk, just talk and talk and talk. And afterwards, I, tra I transcribed the responses <clears throat> and I saw a pattern, a complete pattern. And while doing this work also, it was a little difficult because I had such admiration for this work that I could, I had to make sure I didn't bring this into my research. You know, I could not be biased. I can't just push a narrative that I think is important <clears throat> just because I want to. Mm -hmm. You know, as a researcher, we're not, I'm not here to push what I think is good. As a researcher, I'm just here to push what I find. And so I transcribed the responses and I coded them in a sense of, I see a theme here. I see a theme of brotherhood, a theme of healing. And I pulled out specific words and key phrases and sentences that they all had similar. You know, keep in mind, I interviewed them separately, and yet they were repeating the same narrative. And so I constantly got, you know, answers of um, them feeling like they can actually talk and feel safe. Answers of that they understood each other because they lived what they lived. And so they understood it. Um, I got responses of brotherhood, of them not them reporting that they don't feel alone, you know, whereas in, when you're incarcerated, there's a sense of isolation, right? And it kept popping up. And so I was just highlighting, highlighting, and, you know, I presented that as well. But what was also interesting is that <clears throat> I got a, a response that the use of lived experiences only really works if that person has something worthy to show. And I was really fascinated by this point because it's like, okay, well, having lived experiences really helps other folks, yes. But when I got that response, I was I was taken aback because I'm like, you know, that makes sense. Because if this person who was fully incarcerated is not doing well, you know, they're not able to find employment, things like that, does that really affect and does that provide good leadership? And is that a good mentor? for other people who are navigating um, being formally incarcerated. And so that brought me to my research that I did on California's recidivism rate. And the fact that, you know, this idea of mentorship and utilizing lived experiences can work, can be an effective way of, you know, addressing recidivism, but only if California or rather society provides the necessary support that they need to actually grow for them to become leaders themselves to become hopeful themselves to start pushing and breaking this narrative of incarceration it will th this idea of mentorship could work and it will work but it starts with providing the basic resources that they need to blossom and to be rooted um, and so that's where i started arguing where it's like well california needs to address this very punitive form of laws. Um, I did work on, I did research on the school to prison pipeline and 
so many, why is that their school police officers and they're very um, punitive in their, um, you know, in, in, in their consequences about immediately expel or immediately sent to a police like detention center. So it's like, why is that? You know, we're just funneling them into this system. Um, and it, it just continues a narrative, right? Um, so it, it was it was a really stressful project because like I said, I transcribe these interviews and they could be up to two hours. And then you're just listening over again their experiences and it's like, this needs to be, like more folks need to talk about this. And so this research did get, get, did get an award. Um, UC Davis has a new initiative uh, called Beyond the Barriers, which is an initiative on campus that supports formerly incarcerated students into you know, their path to education. And so it was awarded by them and it, um, it will be presented in fall at a conference as well. Um, and I, I am actually also in the process of trying to design another research study, um, but that is for future. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited to hear <laughs> what your future work is. I mean, I think like just listening to the way that you approach research to start, I guess, I think the trait that you have of being super curious about things and always asking why is so, so important. And then also your willingness not to kind of just blindly accept things as the way that they are, which is something that we all fall guilty um, to yeah. far too often. Um you touched on this idea of being self-aware as a researcher, right? Not pushing the narrative that you hope or wish that yeah. there is, but pushing the narrative that actually exists. Exactly. Um, and then to touch on kind of the response that you got in your research that this idea that lived experiences only work when the person who's experienced those lived experiences has, has something positive to show, something positive to model, right? And I think to me, mentorship is sort of modeling behaviors, especially if the pre the past of the of the mentor and the mentee are are similar in certain ways. And I think when you talk about providing space, providing room for mentees to follow the model of their mentor, it is in the form of the resources of the rehabilitation of the opportunities um, that you mentioned that are so important. You go, Wallace. That was awesome. I, I loved how you. <laughs> no, no, no. The ideas, the the ideas are all yours. I'm, 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 I'm just saying them again. But thank you. Like but Wallace, you. you synthesized that so perfectly. My goodness. <laughs> okay, thank you. No, for the listener, I did not have Brittany on just so she could sort of pump my tires about my podcast. <laughs> but I, I, I do appreciate it. Um, but no, I mean, I think the 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 work, like I've said over and over again, we'll continue to say the work is so so important. But I think just in general there's a lot of challenge that you face. It's emotionally taxing and exhausting work at times, I imagine. How have you sort of developed ways to consistently and sustainably approach this work with the energy and effort that it requires while also making sure like that you can continue to do it for, for the long haul and not burn out? Oh my goodness. I love your question so much because I, I was burned out yesterday. I'm <laughs> being <laughs> completely transparent and candid with you. Um, I know how it comes out that I'm all sunshine and flowers and I'm really positive boy let me tell you i could get really stressed yeah. <laughs> um you know for example the stress of have like you know working in this organization and knowing that this is an awesome 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 organization but the stress of the fact that you're still operating in a society that makes it very difficult for you to just you know makes it very difficult for you to push barriers mm -hmm. you know um 
So we come to the issue of a lot of finances. How can we fund this program? Because these folks need to eat. These folks need a job. Um, how can we fund this? And how could we get, um, you know, approval? How can we get good partnerships? How can we get people to trust us? You know, because like I said earlier, the, the people who are feeling crazy, a lot of people don't necessarily trust them right away, you know, but it's like, and, you know, sometimes it feels that I'm yelling at the top of my lungs like this works, trust us, help them, support them. And it's like sometimes it feels like we're just completely being denied a lot of times, you know. Um, so yesterday, for example, we just finished a, a federal base grant. You know, this is our first federal grant that we we're applying for. And I'm really hopeful for it. Um, I'm really proud. I, I, I spent 10 hours in the office finishing it. I was very stressy. Um, and so, yes, it is a lot of work to maintain organization and do my best to supporting the folks who have like the lived experience, bring them to go out into this work. And it is emotionally taxing sometimes when, you know, you have youth speak about their experience and it just tears at you the life that they have experienced already. It, it tears at you and you are, I'm again, faced with this whole idea of why. Um, but, you know, as much as I am a researcher, I'm also someone who has to accept that I can't understand everything. Um, I go I could only, I could only do my best in handling everything, you know? Yeah. And so, um, after every, you know, type of defeat or type of sad day or a lot of work, I think it's important to remember that there's something bigger than me that you know i'm gonna have another day i'm gonna have another shot at this there's a there, there's there's people who i work with <clears throat> this is a group effort we're all doing the best that we can and you know i take time for myself you know the the glory the glory of self-care you know that's a really you know <laughs> everyone says do self-care but you know sometimes self-care also means just taking a step back to um not just it's not just taking a bubble bath and you know doing things like that and, you know sometimes it's some serious um serious like understanding of what you're going through how you're going through it um you know i i wish i could have like a more straightforward answer to you i know i went like around the block in the no back and no, forth, no 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 i think that's great i mean i think it's not a straightforward question, yeah. so I think it <laughs> no, does not necessarily merit a straightforward yeah. answer. I think no, I don't have a routine where I'm like, I go home, I pour a glass of tea, and that's it. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. I, it's, it's, it is not as simple as that. But I think yeah. the point that you make about self care being more than just doing things for yourself, but also allowing yourself to be with yourself, to practice some yeah. introspection, to practice self awareness, to understand what what you're what what you're truly feeling about yeah. what you've experienced is. Is important for everybody. I think it's um, easy for us to go on pilot mode a lot. That's mm -hmm, why. So mm -hmm. it's really important to check in and just evaluate yourself, making sure that you're okay. Hey, like, are you still focused? Are you still conscious? Or are you just going about your day? You know, yeah. it's yeah. easy to be numb, you know? Absolutely. Well, I mean, this, that was, that was a nugget of wisdom in an episode of, 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 of lots of, of lots of wisdom. So for me, Brittany, thank you so, so much for 
for your insight, for your time. I mean, as I've said many times, this is really, really important work. Um, and mm. I am glad for you and just glad for everybody in general that your research has, has received the attention and um, award that it deserves. And I'm excited Aww. to excited to see what you kind of continue to produce in that field. So that's yeah. all for me, Brittany. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate you, Wallace. Thank you so much. And it was great talking to you. Thank you for your questions. And, you know, thank you to everyone who's really here with us. And, and I hope that we can all continue talking about this, you know, that we all share ideas and share what we feel is going on. And so thank you so much. And, you know, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Okay. Be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Separation is in the Preparation podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do what you can to share it with others. As always, you can find us on Instagram at the Sep is in the Prep, or if you'd like to reach me directly, I can be found on all social media platforms under the handle at Wallapse11. Thanks and